you know, my parents came from, you know, a, a war, and they were really poor in Vietnam too. So had I stayed in Vietnam, I would not be here at all, anywhere close to what I'm doing. On this podcast, we share inspirational stories, unique strategies, and the life lessons from entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and innovators in our communities who have transformed their lives and the community around them. Hi, my name is Kevin LePage, and you're listening to Exponentialists On Air. Today on Exponentialist On Air, we have V Nguyen, an exponentialist startup founder who found her inspiration for entrepreneurship through nonprofit work and working in media. She embodies what I like to call the pivot, as she went from working in the media industry to jumping head on into the world of startups. A daughter of refugees, she has dedicated her recent venture, Home Ads, to finding others home. V is in the long-term housing rental business, and if you are in the podcast market, we are open for business. V, welcome to the show. Thank you. No problem. All right. So first, we're going to start out with an easy question, just get the ball rolling. Um, so what is entrepreneurship to you? And do you think that it has a traditional path? I think for me, entrepreneurship was something that I was introduced to when I was younger. So my mom, she, both my parents are refugees, so they came over after the Vietnam War. And so my dad did the traditional route, getting that stable job, gets your insurance, all that stuff, right? Um, and my mom, she was working, she taught herself how to sew. So she actually didn't know, she wasn't a seamstress before, she didn't know how to do it, but she knew she could make money that way. And so she was working for other people and doing that and then started realizing, well, I could do this myself. And she started her own business. Um, she has it still today, and that's actually what got us through college. Um, so for me, it was a very, very close perspective of what entrepreneurship um, early on. I remember flyering out, like she used us as you know, child labor, <laughs> <laughs> where we'd go flyer cars and things like that. So I had a really early perspective of what it meant to market to people, um, getting people in, and really watched her build her customer base there. Um, so for me, yeah, it was, it's not a traditional route and I don't think, I think that's why entrepreneurship is fun, right? Is there, there isn't a route to get there. You can take classes and all that stuff, but really it's the experience that, um, shapes you into being an entrepreneur. Perfect. Okay. So it seems from a, from a young age, you were around entrepreneurship and that kind of got you, uh, to have a passion, to be interested in it, uh, further on your career. Very cool. Now, uh, we'll head back and to, uh, when you're growing up, what kind of obstacles did you face? As you mentioned, uh, your parents were both uh, refugees, immigrants coming to America. Um, just describe kind of what obstacles you had to face when you were younger. Um, there, there are good and bad parts about how I grew up. So I grew up in a small town outside of Fort Worth. So there were, from then till now, so about like the early 2000s of you know high school until now, it's, that population has still been 4,000 people. And so it's not a lot of fluctuation, um, which is great in that aspect, in some aspects, because it's the, there's not too much diversity to where everyone accepts each other. There, there wasn't a lot of hostility towards um, race or any type of diversity, right? Um, but then it was also really difficult is because it was a low-income community. So everyone in our school was low-income. And that was great in the sense of no one really felt poor, or at least I didn't feel like, because we all kind of were, right? So it wasn't like you're going to make fun of someone because you're all in the same boat. But the problem with that is that the resources are lacking, 
right? The school systems, you don't get as much money, you don't get the funding. So you don't get the teachers that care, you don't get the programs there for you. And one of my biggest hurdles early on was um, having teachers who cared. Um, so most of my classes, I knew I wasn't going to be prepared for college. And so getting in college, I had to work my butt off to pretty much be average, right? But the second part is that people, it was this mentality of um, failing, and they didn't really want you to succeed there. Um, it wasn't spoken, but it was definitely there. And so I had, my first obstacle was trying to get into college. And for most people, you know, you have your counselors helping you, you have all this stuff. And I just need a transcript sent to my colleges. And I went every day to go get my transcript sent. And I would ask them, it has to be the official transcript, right? Never sent it to point to where it disqualified me from some applications too. Mm -hmm. Um, ultimately, in the end, I was able to get into college, um, went to UT, but the um, thing that I had learned from there is that someone's going to tell you no, even if you deserve to say, you know, someone say no to you or not, you're going to have to figure out a way to get there regardless if that route, you know, that is typically for everyone else there, it may not be there for you, and how do you get around to that? So when you're growing up and you move on to UT, University of Texas at Austin, and so describe, I guess, the changes between those, those atmospheres in which uh, from you're growing up and then just moving into Austin, Texas and moving into UT in general. So the first biggest difference is I graduated 87 students, mm -hmm. so pretty tiny, right? And no diversity. I was the only Asian family, you know, the only Asian person was like my brother and sister. <laughs> so it wasn't really a lot of diversity there. And so coming to UT, it was very interesting because there's just so many different types of people. And I think on the social skill wise, that was initially harder, but then it got easier because I wasn't coming in where I had a click from my high school. I didn't know anyone. So I had to learn the skill of getting to know people and learning people you know how to talk to people so that was a hard hurdle at first but um you know i kind of figured that part out the second part i think is the same lesson i had learned before was you know if you if someone's not giving you what you want and you can still find a narrow way around it right um, so there are certain times where i would kind of butt up butt heads with a ta where it was like hey she really didn't think that i deserved um, having a good grade. And so, and it wasn't based off of content. It was just, she was very picky. And so, um, long story short for this one is, um, I had talked to a professor and it was just one of those things of college. They allow you to just, you have office hours. You can always go and talk to them and get as much help as possible. Um, so I kept on going and kept on going and the TA was like, go to a writing center here, you know, this is not on my hands basically. <laughs> and I went to a professor and I was like, Hey, I got, I didn't realize it was plagiarism at the same time, but it was, um, it was my same paper. So I was plagiarizing from myself apparently is what it is. So you're not allowed to turn in the same paper. Right. Um, to different classes. And I didn't realize that. And I had told a professor, hey, I know this already in our paper, but what I wanted to point out is I got an A on this paper in their class and a failing grade on this one. And so it was very evident for him. And so I told him, I was like, hey, you know, I, I understand that I was being sent to a writing center, but that's the TA's job. And he looks at me, and this is the first time in my life where I was like, wow, you can actually kind of prove someone wrong. It's not just black and white. And he just looks at me and he goes, 
I don't know what to tell you. You know, he was just like, you're right. And then I got an A. And so I was like, wow. So just because someone tells you no, doesn't mean it's no. You just have to find the right way. You know, use your ethics, use your morals, that kind of stuff. But, you know, it doesn't always mean no. No, it doesn't always mean no. A good entrepreneurship lesson, obviously, as you're going through and you have to have, you know, perseverance and a little bit of grit um, to continue through that down that path. All right. When you went to college, um, where did your passion come from when you were looking towards majoring in um, RFT, radio, television, film, and also doing a double major in sociology. Was it Matthew McConaughey coming from UT? Uh, what was that? What was that passion that led to that majoring? So I came into UT actually, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Right. So I started out as Asian studies and realized like I don't really care. It's just I was interested in what you know. And so I, I cared, but not enough to have it as a career. And I, in my sophomore year, I said, I really need to figure this out because I'm just much more motivated when I have a goal, you know? And I think a lot of people are in that way. And I, I said, so I went to several different counselors that summer and just really wanted to see what can I do with these careers and what are the things I like. And I started out with um, sociology. And I think I... Only did sociology for a while and then um, jumped into RTF after and decided double major. But my mindset was I really loved nonprofit. And so I wanted to go in and, you know, um, just work in nonprofit my whole life. And as I continued forward, I realized, well, I really, you know, I had one film class in high school and I loved it so much. I love production and post-production especially. And so I said, well, I could probably... Um, double major with all the you know um, credits I already have I could do it within four and a half years so I said okay well I'll I'll do that and so I I went that route and then ended up going into um, nonprofit but the funny part is that it was always the media aspect of things I thought nonprofit was or I thought um, RTF was going to be a fun hobby and it ended up being more of my career for the early part of my adulthood and so how do you feel like you've used, I guess, that sociology major? How did that play into uh, leading to your career and kind of where you are now? Yeah, that's the fun part is um, I think of both. Like people always say like, oh, my, so my brother has a philosophy degree and everyone's like, oh, what are you going to really use that for? But it's like your undergrad is your, your foundation, you know, that it does not matter if you look at people that have sociology degrees or psychology or philosophy or anything, they're, they're everyone, you know, it, it's not like this single route that you have that takes you to this one career. And I think that's uh, really misleading because a lot of people come in thinking they'll just kind of be guided that way. But you have to be a lot more creative in it, right? And so for me, when I, I found that in nonprofit, it was it was definitely evident. Like it's kind of easy to see, like how you know a, a person's social economic status affects their health and affects their outcomes, right? So nonprofit was very very easy to see, um, but with home ads, it was actually very different, but even more pivotal because we're creating something that a mass amount of people are using, right? So then you kind of have to think, well, if I'm gonna build this do I want society to turn out this way or this way right like it it sounds kind of crazy or silly but it is very interesting of um you have the power to create something that changes societies 
you know? And so we were very, one of our, like, what we thought about was how technology affects communities and people, right? And you have social media and, and people always say, the more you use social media, the more depressed and isolated you feel. And so we said, well, I don't know. I don't know about creating this network of people if we're just gonna you know, perpetuate the same problems. And so our vision is to create online communities that support real life communities. So what that means is, hey, we're, it's not just a, hey, I'll like something and I don't need to see you. It's more of, this is a bridge that allows you to know now that you have a neighbor that you probably wouldn't have known, you know, really likes similar things as I do. And I'll actually go meet them. Or, you know, as a homeowner, there's someone relocating in and they're staying at your place and you start realizing, you know, there's a lot of things in common that you like. You know, some, some of my closest friends actually came from, renters from home ads that stayed at my my place and they're really awesome people and i never would have met them had i not you know gone through the platform okay a way to say how sociology uh, kind of ties back to kind of what you're doing right now mm-hmm. and just emphasizing the people aspect so growing up in a four thousand person mm-hmm. town um did sociology and trying mm-hmm. to focus on people help you kind of expand your horizons on um i guess the world Actually, I mean, really, it was just growing up and traveling that, <laughs> you know, opened my eyes. One of the things is when you, anyone that grows up in a small town wants to leave a small town, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think it really opened my horizon as in how it affects people. Maybe maybe I'll think and analyze a little bit more because uh, I'll talk with certain people and it, it's my closest friends that love how I think, where they'll be like, oh, you know, I love how you're analyzing, like, how, I like psychology a lot, too, and it's like how people think or why they operate and how it affects society. But then it, there's other people who just don't care about that, and they're like, why are you overanalyzing everything? And for me, it's like, it's not stressful to me. It's just that's how my mind works now. So maybe it is I probably do look at situations differently now. Um, but it had less to do with coming from a small town. A small town actually was even more interesting is because when it's so insular like that, um, there's so much weight into what people think or do. And so in a way, I think there's more like a sociological impact of certain things in small communities than there are in larger ones. Yeah, that makes sense. And so moving out of college, so you move into um, working in as you said, the radio, television, film industry. So it lead me through some obstacles that you faced and kind of your career path at that point. Okay. So I went and, and I started a job at um, Boat People, which is a nonprofit for refugees and immigrants. And I had worked in the disaster case um, branch. Mm-hmm. So it's mostly like Hurricane Ike, um, prep, that sort of stuff. And... They utilize me mostly for the media side because if you think about nonprofits, no one has a media budget, right? So they kind of got an outreach coordinator out of me and also media. So I started doing a lot of that. Um, and that, that was good more on the cultural side because I just was not exposed to, outside of studying abroad in Vietnam, I wasn't exposed to a lot of the Vietnamese culture as intensely until I went into Bo people. Um, I think the, the hurdles actually came a little further when I decided I had started a production company with someone I met through that nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And that was two of, two of my biggest hurdles there was um, first business is it's a service business, right? So really easy to be like, hey, I'm going to sell you the service and we're going to give you a product. Um, the problem with that is I didn't know how to grow it. 
So I would be able to advertise and get clients, but then I would have to turn down taking that project because I only had myself and my um, co-founder. I didn't really understand the concept of, well, why don't you hire someone or you know create a team? I didn't know how to build a team at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Home Ads, we have about 10 people now there, right? Everyone's part-time, kind of scrappy, that sort of stuff. I'm the only full-time. But I learned how to rely and delegate my tasks with other people and people I trust because of um, starting that production company. Um, second thing I had learned that was a little bit of a hurdle is a little bit more on the confidence side. I was training for um, these Walmart commercials that were shooting. It was like uh, Houston and they had this huge campaign that was going all around the US and I was handling the Houston branch. And as I was training, I think I was in LA at the time and the, the guy training me, I they kept on pushing me to be the director and cinematographer. And I I just wanted to just do this small job. You know, I, I just I didn't wanna like lead things and they just kept on pushing me. I get this I guess they saw that I could do it. And eventually I ended up going that direction and I was really anxious about it. And I asked the guy training me, I was like, you know, what do you, like, he could tell that I was nervous, I think. And his best advice I still, you know, have with me today is he says, when you walk out there, you know, and you mess up anything, keep it to yourself. Just act like you know what you're doing because when you walk out there, know that you're the expert out there. No one knows how to run a camera, how to shoot, how to direct, do any of those things. Um, They're doing their own specialties, right? And that's very true of anything. Um, You know, you walk into a meeting and so so many people are kind of nervous about it, but like now when I walk in a meeting, I know I'm the only person probably in Austin that knows anything about midterm rentals, right? It's such a niche thing and we've been doing it for so long that I have the confidence to know like, oh, even if I really, you know, am unsure, I still know more than the person I'm talking to, right? Mm -hmm. So I I don't even have to be worried about that. And do you think that's an important skill in entrepreneurship, being able to like be confident in what you're presenting, even when you may not be so sure of it? Yeah, it's it's a fine line, right? it stereotypically women do better on the not uh, boasting too much because it's but then they kind of fall into the not really being confident at all right so it's, it's kind of in between for any entrepreneur is like you don't want to go too far to where you're just selling something that the, which is smoke and mirrors for a lot of startups I know, you know, you think they're doing amazing. You'll ask like, oh, how's everything going? And they're like, oh, we're killing it. And, all that <laughs> and really, in all honesty, that's just a very bad thing to push amongst uh, uh, the startup, you know, economy, because it's just you don't want people to feel like they're the only ones struggling. But then you also don't want to push it where it's the struggling is success here. Right. So it's, it's this huge balance of, hey, you know, be confident in your team and what you're building, um, but uh, be realistic and then also don't just fake it and like, you know, because there's just so much of that, unfortunately, when it comes to startups. That makes sense. Okay. So you go through and you start with Sans Talent Productions. Mm-hmm. If I read, okay. Did my research correctly. Cool. Um, and so um, that was kind of what you kind of started for the photography and the production side. And I, and as you were talking about it, it's kind of emphasizes the act, the action of like 
taking action and which you may not know like the entire grasp of the situation like you didn't know like how to scale it and things mm-hmm. like that but you just took action and so i think that's important for entrepreneurship and so you go from production business to i think for freelance photography and you go straight into home ads um, midterm rental housing startup and so that's the the main pivot they're mm-hmm. coming from following that RTF kind of side to going into um, going into a startup. And so take me through that pivot. What were the, I guess, just why? Why the pivot? Um, so I think for majority of people, the first pivot that they would typically make is full-time job to entrepreneur, right? And that seems scary. I had a lot of small steps to it. Um, so first it was, hey, I had that nonprofit that gave me benefits. I had a paycheck. It was stable. And then I decided to just freelance. And so going from full-time job to freelancing was scary already. But my sister was a, um, she's still a, f- a freelance photographer. My mom did her own business. So I kind of understood, you know, oh, okay, this is what it means to freelance. Like my sister gave me one of the best advice. And she said, you're going to have your heart attacks. You're going to panic. You're going to think, how am I going to pay my rent? You know, but you know, you work hard enough, that's what pushes you. And it's, you start realizing, oh, it's going to come each month. It's just not that stability that you have, right? Um, you build your customer base and eventually you'll, you'll be able to make money. You just kind of have to budget appropriately. Mm-hmm. And she was right about that. I then got comfortable with freelancing and was freelancing and took on a lot of projects. So at the time I was doing um, video projects and mostly was trying to do mostly production or post-production. So a lot of editing work. I could travel, I could do anything because I didn't actually have to be on site for a lot of things. And then same time, I was getting into short-term rentals. So I traveled, did Airbnb, and I was like, I could do this. And so I wanted to rent out my place and got a little out of hand because then I was like renting out everything to the point to where I was going camping over the weekend because I didn't actually have a place to live anymore. And But then I said, well, this is becoming so much money. I really want to make this a real business. And so I did all my paperwork, got my um, short-term rental license, paid my hotel taxes. I was probably the only person that got my license because they remembered me three years later when I started home ads. They were like, oh, yeah, I remember you got your license. <laughs> so I did everything correct. And then it taught me, you know, the process. But then I also started seeing like, you know, this is so much work resetting and I really don't like saying I don't like saying hi to someone like I like people but I don't like shallow conversations right Mm -hmm. and that just tends to happen if you're only seeing them for two days you know and that's that's kind of what Airbnb brought was like this shallow conversation that I would have of oh what are you here for you know this is what I do and then well if you need anything and that's it um and then it costs so much to reset too um it costs a lot of time or money or both And so I said, you know, I'd really just love to leave and then just have someone there, but then not have to have an annual lease because you have no flexibility or anything. And then you may not even have a whole year on this property that you could rent it out, you know. So I want something a little bit smaller. And so I then was like, well, Airbnb will have it. I'll just use that. And I started looking. I was like, they don't let you do that. That's so weird. And then so I started searching some more and I was like, no one lets you do this. All I want to do is rent out for three months and that's it, you know? Um, and that's when I started asking friends because that's the first step. I always tell anyone is you have an idea, start talking to people. Don't hold on to this idea and think like someone's going to steal it because really there's a million ideas. Execution mm-hmm. is, is what's valuable, right? And so I started talking to my friends and um, 
I honestly did not know anything what computer science was. I didn't know like what development or coding really meant. But I knew one of my friends from college went to computer. You know, I had a computer science degree, and I was like, "Hey, does that mean you're a developer?" <laughs> he was like, "Uh, yeah." <laughs> and so I got a little bit of advice from my friends, and and within that, I also found um, my early on team members. They joined in because they really liked the idea, and then um, it kind of went from there. Perfect. Okay, so that's the pivot right mm-hmm. there. And so now that you're in, um, this may this is probably a leading question, but um, when we're going to your startup, and now that you're on the business side, and you're in the housing market, um, and you're in the you know Austin startup industry, and you started out in production and RFT. So is there a sense of um, quote unquote like regret in going into that first before moving into something that you're now doing now? I used to think that way i used to think why didn't i just go get a business degree you know because i didn't really realize everything i liked about everything i've ever done has been the business side but it really took all those instances and those hurdles that we talked about right that shaped me to even understand that this is a good route for me um i mean i'll even have to say admit that had i known how hard it would have been or the resources it would take um, and hard meaning hard for me, like public speaking, right? I was so scared of everything. I was not a networker. I was not anything. Hard in a personal comfort type of thing. Um, had I known before, I would have said no. You know, I would have just been like, no, I'll just, because you can make, if it was all about money, and at that time for me, it was like, oh, I'll just make a business. It was like capitalism, right? <laughs> that was kind of my mindset. I didn't really have this broader vision of, hey, I can really build something that affects people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in theory, would say like, oh, I would love to support that, but it was just, it was too scary, I think, back then. I had it piece by piece that allowed me to be like, oh, I can do that a little bit more. I can, I can do that. That's not as scary, you know? Um, but knowing where I am today, yeah, I would, I would definitely make myself do it, you know, if I, if I had to do it again. And moving into home ads, um, did you use kind of the, I guess you can say like the design thinking process? I know you talked about a little bit in which, uh, you talked to friends first and just kind of like, I guess that it could be like the, the empathy process in which you're like going out and like field research, try to talk to people. Did you use any other like strict steps in the business making or did you just kind of take action and see where it led so starting off it really was scrappy it i mean our copy was written by either me or developers which you could imagine is really rough um and but it was okay it's just that i understand now when people want experienced teams because you know all these steps now like i'm experienced to understand what the real quote-unquote professional steps are Mm -hmm. right Um, We did not, and that's why it took us about two years to kind of... So the first two years, we got enough traction, we were getting bookings, but it was just slow and it wasn't converting the way we wanted. And so we pitted and and changed a lot of things um, at the beginning of this year. So we'll we'll actually be releasing our product at the end of this month. Mm -hmm. So we're super, super excited about it. But um, when we first did it, it was because the common um, advice about startups is you know, have a product and reiterate, right? Mm-hmm. But in a way, I, I almost um, disagree with that because I started out doing that and it's expensive mm-hmm. because you're overbuilding. You're building a product, having to rebuild, 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 right? Versus the cost of um, doing market research, 
does not cost the same as development. <laughs> so um, at the beginning of this year, we spent a lot of our time doing our homeowner and renter journeys. So the full, you know, UI UX, like we're gonna, you know, interview people, transcribe every word, pull out themes, create surveys, validate with 250 survey, you know, responses and make mock-ups, usability testing. Those are things we were never taught. You know, I, I had to work with someone else that knew it to teach our team how to do that. And then we eventually started doing that because it gives me so much more confidence to then spend the money and time it costs for development. Because that's your biggest cost typically if you're building, you know, a software product. Right. Definitely when you're going for the software product, I think um, like moving towards maybe like rough prototypes is also a good idea instead of like going through the full like finished product. And then I'm um, just iterating on like rough prototypes and things like that to kind of move further into the research and on the surveys. Yeah, I will say that's different for different um, companies, right? Like if you just had an e-commerce site, then it's, it's actually not that bad. You, you do a shopping cart, you know, you can take pictures and put it up there. But um, unfortunately for us, you know, not only are we dealing with a large amount of payments and escrowing that payment, we also need these listings to show up. It's a lot of you know assets in there and a back end for our homeowners, a back end for our renters. That was something I just did not understand when I first started. I asked my friend, I was like, hey, I can pay for like this for three grand, right? He was like, no. I think 50 grand and three times <laughs> buffer, which he was actually, that was a good estimate because that's about how much we've spent so far on our first you know um, iteration of things. It just was a slow process of building everything. Yeah, it's, it's definitely way more extensive on what we have to build um, versus if it was something very simple. I would I always push people to do very lean, right? If you can just have a splash page with like a shopping cart, do that, you know. But with properties that's like two grand or more occasionally, you know, it that's no one's going to just see a picture and want to use a shopping cart. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay. And we, you mentioned uh, when you were talking, when you had to ask people um, who, knew, who knew more about it. And obviously, I think um, when you're moving into the whole like housing industry, you probably had to ask some people, get some mentors. So what, um, what, oh, did you have specific mentors and sponsors that helped you through the process? And can you lead me through like that, that mentorship kind of process? Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I first started, we were kind of talking... The personality that I typically tend to be is that I like to ask everyone everything. And that will annoy some people to no end because they think like, oh, you should know. But the thing in my head is like, even though I know what I want, I may not know why I don't know, right? So I want to know all the answers out there and then I'll use my brain to analyze them to be like, okay, this is the best route for me. And so that's essentially what I did was, you know, you start with your family and friends and then you keep on going from there. And each family and friend will be like, oh, you should talk to this person, right? Like, that's the basics of networking is meet one person, get them to intro you to two hours, and then you just continue that web. And that was part of it. And then the era part was um, Capital Factory. They're, they're a really good asset on the co-working side. Is, um, we didn't join the Accelerator, but we utilized all the resources they had available um, as a company that co-works there. And they have all these mentors. You know, it's it's a hit or miss on on some of them, but you know, you kind of learn what's what works, and you'll get to meet people. And it's fifteen minutes to thirty minutes that you can spend with these people and just quickly network versus you know how long it typically would take. So we we grew our network that way, um, but then eventually 
I found that, hey, there are certain advisors that are, their advice is just better in the sense of because they know you and they know what's going on with your company every week, right? Like versus a mentor is someone that's like, hey, you know, next quarter, give me a call or, you know, and and so then you're going to have to spend half the meeting updating them what happened and then their half of the meeting, you know, trying to get their insights on it versus, hey, this advisor is not only has skin in the game, has, you know, equity, all that stuff, they're vouching for you. But they know everything that's going on with you, so they'll likely make more intros. They're likely gonna, you know, do a lot of things. They they also tend to, you know, become investors too, um, as they get more, you know, acquainted with your company. So my advisors are honestly my lifeline. Like, I will talk to certain people, and then I've literally called, you know, an advisor and had him quote unquote like talk me off the ledge on, on certain things where I'm like, oh, I didn't think that we had to do this. And he was like, no, we're not doing this, you know. And so it helps me kind of, if you find the advisors that fit the values that you have, they'll, they'll always kind of keep you from going astray. Okay, so for a, for a startup, and if you're looking to go into entrepreneurship, you'd recommend more of finding mentors being good, but also trying to find um, advisors who will be with you every step of the process, have a little skin in the game. That's what that's your recommendation? Yeah, I mean, really the mentors are the people when you talk to mentors, ideally it's one of the situation is that your progresses to them being becoming an advisor or not. You know, because it's ear do you do they believe in you and then do you, do they provide the value that you want? Right? Otherwise they wouldn't really be a mentor anymore. You know, so I in my head, at least, my mentors have become my advisors, and then that's the only people I talk to. You know, I only spend my time with them, and if it's new mentors, it's because I'm thinking maybe I want them as an advisor. And for going going back to home ads, then uh, what's been a, a major, I guess, your greatest obstacle when um, progressing through home ads? <laughs> I was talking to Shashank. He's our head of tech and one of our co-founders. And I was talking about how, you know, we were looking back about how long, he's been with us for about three years now, and we were looking back at it, and I said, well, you know, Homez is really different, where I don't know that many small startups that build as quickly as we do, right? And because we have a ton of part-time contractors, I'm talking about they have full-time jobs, so we don't have to worry about paying their mortgage, but they also are working five to 10 hours a week, and so it's not a ton. So you're having to roll up a whole bunch of contractors, right? Um, and he looks at it, or he, he tells me, he goes, well, it's not even just how quickly we build. He was like, with how little resources we have. Because when you think about it, we spent like, I had mentioned it was like 50K and then three times buffer. So you're thinking about like 150 to 200K, right? In the last three to four years. <laughs> like that's pretty little. And, and it's not because I have some junior developer who shouldn't be paid a lot. These are senior devs. These are people that are like, you know, ahead in their industry. It's more of I've found throughout the years is that I'm good at... Um, building a team and building a team that cares about what we do. And so everyone that joins our team sticks with us, you know, and, and they're qualified people, but they're giving us a cheap rate because they're, you know, they want this to succeed. And they also know I don't get paid. So it's not like 
I'm just paying them because I don't think they're worth it. You know, they know that that's not it. There's full transparency in the company and that. So we're all working for the same goal, you know, and we do it professionally. We do it right with the right legal documents, that sort of stuff. And that builds trust as well. Perfect. Okay. And that's, uh, I guess, taking it back to entrepreneurship and kind of a lesson to take from it is that like, um, even if you have uh, minimal resources, you can still um, go and succeed and try to you know, take action into that startup. And in your case, um, you didn't need to use a lot of resources. You may not have even, even if you had access to it, you may not have even used them. Um, but we you probably would have, <laughs> to be okay. honest. Okay. It's, we were in a way forced to bootstrap and use it a, a small amount because we just weren't able to find funding at the time, which I understand why we were all new people. You know, we weren't experienced or anything. We didn't know anything about the industry. The industry was relatively new too. And so I understand people's hesitation until, you know, we had angel investing earlier this year, um, but it was after about two-ish, you know, years of learning. So I'm glad we didn't have that. And then 150K can seem like a lot too, right? Like some people can, I was talking to someone, she has a massive company now and she started out, it's a service company, so it's a little bit different. She's not building Mm -hmm. a platform but started out with 8K and is now like doing wonderful, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, you can do things with very, very little just for our, you know, situation. There, there was just very few ways that I feel like we could have been leaner than what we had been. Perfect. All right. My next question, um, leads back to, um, your LinkedIn bio, a classic. Um, you mentioned that you had a passion for improving communities, um, in which we live in. And so, what, uh, what have you been doing to, um, to show that passion, to demonstrate that in the community? So it's interesting because it's like this, like, it's not a straight line, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to point out is, you know, I come in very idealistic and first starting home ads and, and coming from nonprofit and everything. We're like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to do all these wonderful things. We're going to change the world. And then you know, life happens and then you're like, well, we need to make money and make sure we pay everyone. And, and so then we got more into the business side of things. This is how much you know it costs to acquire a customer and this is how much we're getting from this. And, and that's great. You have to know all, all of your metrics. You have to understand how business works. Um, so I'm glad it went that way. But I, I started also realizing my happiness was starting to dwindle the more I did that because I was all business. And ever I lived and breathed home ads, right? There, there wasn't as much balance as I have today. And so I was all business, all about the numbers, and it was helpful. But um, I started to dislike what I was doing. And I was like, oh, gosh, can't. That this is not a good sign, you know. And that was like around the time when I was starting to raise money, too. So you're like, oh, it, am I just like, hate? is this what my life is going to be? You know, am I going to hate everything I do? And I realized it was just I didn't have the balance that I needed and that it would actually benefit home ads if I were to bring in the things I love still. And so um, outside of not only building a product that we know um, that would help the community, you know, we think about certain things. So an example is um, we, we have a survey that we allow people to take. And we had demoed it during South by Southwest. And what we do is we... Um, have data sets, so a lot of data sets like census and everything, so we understand um, demographics and we um, break it up into neighborhoods. And so as 
you're giving me, you know, answers to all these questions. You can be like, hey, you know, I just graduated college. This is like, you know, I really like lively cities. I don't want to be in, you know, like rural area. Um, I don't have a family, you know, certain things like that. Um, we're able to give you the top three recommended neighborhoods for you to live in based off your lifestyle. And um, when we demoed it during South by all the Austinites that went through, I think we had like a, there was only one, we did not pinpoint their neighborhood, but everyone else, they actually lived in the neighborhoods we had suggested them to live in. And um, that's really, really cool, right? But then the social, like sociology side of it is like, well, we got to think about Fair Housing Act and we got to think about like, are we segregating people based on income? Are we segregating based on right. certain things? So we have to, our algorithm has to have a heavier basis on certain things more than others, right? Error-wise, you're going to then start building these n neighborhoods that are just like, you know, all the same. And so that's something that we kind of, you know, look at. Um, whenever we're building that part out. Kind of going back into, I guess, the, the ethics of kind of distributing the population. Okay, so um, you also mentioned that while you're an entrepreneur, you're also a world traveler, and um, I assume you like traveling. So um, what do you think is important uh, about traveling and seeing the world um, to people who are trying to um, build their own communities? What, what insights can you take from around the world um, to try to help um, better the communities at home? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I'm pretty good about being like on the fly. Okay. That one got me. Huh? I mean, time. traveling definitely opens your mind, right? I, I wouldn't want to say, like, if you haven't traveled, then you're, you know, you're not, right. like, whatever. Um, but it, I think it's just meeting people that are different. Right. And maybe that's for me what it was, was traveling allows you to see something that you may not see if you had stayed in, you know, like how I say in my small town or, you know, those things. You find people with different mindsets and it may not be what you believe, your beliefs or your values, but I think you're willing and able to learn that they're just another human being that just wants to be happy, you know, and, and that allows you to be OK and coexist with them. Um, you see, you know, right now it's such a rough time in history that everyone wants to just be in their little small pocket of what they believe. This echo chamber that you have on your Facebook or whatever, you know, and you like delete everyone that thinks something differently. And that's terrible is if that translates into physical communities, because then you're going to have your neighbors who all think the same and you're just going to like complain about the same thing and, you know, want the same thing. But there is something really good about someone that doesn't believe in the same things that you do, you know, like what you hear in the news is extremist stuff typically. Um, our everyday life, very unlikely that your neighbor is going to be that extreme. They may have different opposing, you know, thoughts as you, but you are more similar than you are different. And I think that finding that during traveling is an extreme version of it where there, you know, it could be a completely different culture and all that stuff, but you find so many commonalities. And I think that would be wonderful is to bring that here is to where we have these communities where we're we're all, you know, there's a lot of differences, but we're also very, very similar. And if we can concentrate more on that, I think it'd be a much better place. Perfect insight. Okay. And um, we're going to start wrapping this up. And so uh, one question that I want to ask is, um, what coming from a, a lower income background, what obstacles specifically from that did you find when trying to delve into entrepreneurship? 
Um, I talk a lot, so I, I blog a lot and or occasionally, and I talk a lot about how your background matters, and I'm generally a very positive and optimistic person, but there are reasons why there are programs out there for people with low income, because you just don't have the same resources, and it's not about the money, really. It's so much more than that. It's the, you know, I've had interns who have had intros into mentors that I've had a hard time getting to, right? It's because their parents were in that industry or they, they've been around that, right? Like if you're low income, most typically your parents are working class parents. They're not out there mingling with our business people so that you can have a meeting later on or an intern while you're in college. That is, that's what every parent wants to provide for their kid. But unfortunately, that's not what everyone has. And so for me, I think... You're understanding that that was a hurdle of, oh, okay, you don't have the network and, you know, you're not going to get what you want, you know. You're going to have to work harder than everyone else, basically, is what it is. It's not fair. You have to get over that. You just have to understand this is where it is, but you're in a country, you're in a place where you can make changes. You know, that's the beauty of all of this is that, you know, my parents came from, you know, a, a war, and they were really poor in Vietnam, too. So had I stayed in Vietnam, I would not be here at all, anywhere close to what I'm doing. So it's the beauty of it is that it's the American dream, as people put it. You know, it's that you can come in here and you can be from a low income. And if you work hard, then you can get it. There are things that it may not work. You know, there, there are things that don't fit into American dream as in, like, uh, who you know is really important. And that's, you know... That's going to be working hard in a creative way. Like, how do you meet people and how do you get there, you know? But outside of that, you know, there's, there's a lot of barriers you can jump through um, by just working hard. Mm -hmm. And when facing someone that's hard, do you see it more as like, like an opportunity or do you see it more as um, an obstacle? I think that's the... Um, I talk a lot about um, fixed mindset and um, growth mindset, right? Is I... My brother... My older brother really mentored me through everything. Like, my dad nourished me. He was a kid, you know, like, he's the dad. He, he gave me um, a house, you know, all that stuff and fed me. But my brother was really the mentor that taught me my ethics, taught me everything in that. And so he taught me a lot on um, growth mindset and that it's not me, really. It's just I haven't learned that yet, right? So I'm very optimistic of, you know, oh, if something happens then that definitely is an opportunity. You can either say, hey, you know, I'll find a way around this. I'll, I'll do something. Um, you don't just crumble because someone tells you no because, you know, it's going to happen. At some point or another, you're going to get that. You're going to get it often. It's just what happens after someone tells you no. That's kind of who you are, you know. Final question. For, for the audience, um, what is one final piece of advice one lasting piece of advice that you want to give to somebody looking towards entrepreneurship to build themselves and their communities? Hmm. Is really just don't give up when someone tells you no, you know, because it's especially entrepreneurship, that's all knows. Like, it's just a numbers game in a sense, right? It's like customers. You're going to find a lot that don't want your product, but the ones that say yes, that's where you concentrate your your energy, right? And that's how you're going to build a great product. If you're so sad that these people told you no, then, you know, you need to grow some thick skin because that's that's what this is, you know? 
um, customers will tell you no, your team will say no, or people that you want on your team, you know, and your investors will tell you no, your advisors will tell you no. Um, and those are just the things where you just have to suck it up and be like, okay, well, they're saying no for a valid reason or not and assess it and then find what if you can get to where you want to get and concentrate on that and you know i think being positive on that part isn't blindly being positive it's more of utilizing um the small resources that you have mm -hmm. and how to make that a bigger thing amazing insights all right v thank you very much for coming on the exponentialist on air and thank you very much thank you for having me as always, you can contact us at theexponentialists.com under the podcast tab if you have any words of wisdom or advice that you would like to give our listeners for the next segment. Also, feel free to recommend any exponentialists you see in your community that could be guests on our podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you all next week.